0: Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fahes. In today's podcast, Carl interviews Krish Kandaya, theologian, author, and passionate advocate for fostering and adoption. He talks about the heart behind his organization, Home for Good, its growing impact, and how the church needs to live out God's concern for the vulnerable.
1: So, Krish is not your average English name, <laughs> what's, what's that stand for? So Krish is short for Krishna, um, it's a Hindu name, it comes from my father's side of the family. Uh, my father was born in Malaysia, but his father was born in Sri Lanka. And um, my mother on the ha- other hand, she was born in India, and some people can guess, but her father was Irish, so <laughs> I'm I, you know, not quite sure where I'm from. Were well, totally of confused as a child over <laughs> this. Lots of the time, particularly in the Olympics. But at the World Cup, it was easy. It was England all the way.
0: <laughs> uh, how, how did that influence your thinking around areas of faith, belief,
1: religion? So, my parents were really gracious to me. They didn't force me into any faith. Uh, I wasn't inducted into the Catholic Church or the Hindu faith. Um, so, it was through a mate at school, actually, when I was about 15. So, but on your parents, did, did they practice? Did what, I mean, what would their framework have been? Yeah, so my, my mother kind of would, would read the Bible. She would pray with us at night time. My dad, when he went back to Malaysia, he would kind of go to the temple, but he wasn't vegetarian. He, he wore a leather jacket, which is not your kind of standard Hindu practice. Um, so it was quite a laid back thing. Some of it was more about ancestry and history and identity rather than mm. belief and practice. Did you feel drawn to that at all? I was drawn to the idea there is a God. I think that was really clear. You know, I I had this sense that God existed, that this universe was too amazingly beautiful to be an accident. I think that was in my mindset. But I wasn't drawn either to Hinduism or to Catholicism. Actually, I started going to church because there was a kind of mini earthquake outside my house. And I looked outside the window, I was six years old, and there was a marching band going up and down the hill. And it was the big bass drum that was the earthquake. And I said to my mum, I want to go wherever they're going. And she said, okay, and it turns out they were the Salvation Army. And so I, I don't know if I'm the only person ever converted through a Salvation Army marching band <laughs> in England, but that was part of my story. Um, and so church attendance became part of my life. So your mum and dad were happy for you to go off to the Salvation yeah, Army? I, cheap childcare and good values, I think that's <laughs> what they saw. Did you, so you were six, six how, long, how many years did you do that for? I did that for probably about eight years until I'm at secondary school and I'm really private about my faith because the Salvation Army is socially embarrassing for me anyway at that age. Uh, And then a mate turns up in our class one morning And he asked if he can address the class. And this was a dangerous thing to do because our class was a chemistry lab. That's where we had registration. And kids used to suck the gas out of the gas taps and try to light it on their breath. Don't try that at home or at school. It's not a good idea. Um, But he said, look, something happened to me last night. Last night, I became a friend of God. And it's the most amazing thing. And I went up to him. I said, look, I've been secretly going to church. Uh, I know a little bit about this Christianity thing. You, you keep it to yourself. It's a private thing. And he really challenged me. He said, Chris, if you knew the God that I met last night, you wouldn't be able to be silent about him. And I realized he had something I didn't. He had a living relationship with Jesus rather than church attendance. And that was a game changer for me.
0: Wow. in, in that moment, did you, uh recommit your life or deepen your faith or what what was
1: sort of what happened for you personally in that moment? Yeah so I realized he had this living relationship and I was really keen on it and so I started to read the Bible particularly the Gospels I wanted to discover who Jesus was Uh, there were some uh, missionaries in my school that were kind of offering mentoring and so I got got in on that Um, and yeah I think I, I actually committed my life to Jesus in a more profound and real way than I had done through my Sunday school experience. And then I tried to think to myself, well, hold on. If this is true for me and my mate, this is true for everybody. And so my mate and I, we divided the class into two. He took all the kids with surnames A to L and I took M to Z. And we just tried to share faith with them. And what was interesting is they had a lot of questions. You know, how do you know the devil didn't write the Bible? What about other religions? What about science? What about suffering? And I'm going back to the Bible and I'm I'm searching for answers. I'm phoning friends and and trying out answers. And I got a real passion for what they call apologetics, trying to explain the reason for the faith that I had. And uh, that was really a growth curve for me and my friend.
0: So that process wasn't actually reducing your faith because of the answers, the questions they were giving you. It was more like a hardening, almost of the muscles of your faith.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think we gained confidence. We thought. It's true, isn't it? Christianity, if it really is the real thing, it will stand up to questions. We don't have to hide our faith in case someone's gonna break it. We can ask people to engage with it. And actually that's quite a scientific mindset. That's how science progresses, is we say, here's the best theory we've got, show us where we're wrong. And actually, the more times people came at us with tough questions, we had to look and consider. And actually, here's a good answer. It gave us greater confidence to speak it out even more boldly. Wow. coming out of school, what did you go into? So, well, I had a plan that I was going to be a missionary. And uh, at that time, the Soviet Union was a hugely unreached people group uh, because of the persecution of the church and because of uh, communism. And uh, I was reading all these books and watching all these films about what was going on. And so the plan was I was going to study science and I was going to be a scientist by day and a missionary by night. And so I was really excited when the Berlin Wall came down but it meant I really didn't need my science degree to go and be a missionary. But I finished it and um, my wife and I ended up being missionaries in Albania working with students. Wow. How'd how'd that go in in your time in Albania? We loved being in Albania. Albania had been the most atheistic country in the world. It was completely closed to faith. It was illegal to call your son John or to, to have a beard. That was a religious symbol. And so uh, when communism fell, there was a real openness to spiritual things and lots of different mission groups and agencies who had been praying and learning the language and getting ready to go in went in. And uh, we kind of came as part of the second wave and we were trying to establish an Albanian run student movement. So it was Albanians reaching Albanians and our job was just to cheer them on and support them and mentor them so they could run their own movement. Did it build confidence in you? It did. It, it, I was so excited that, again, I, I, I knew the gospel was true, but here was the gospel, you know, crossing cultures and boundaries and, and people finding life, people coming to faith. It was, it was a really exciting time. So you're not in Albania now, <laughs> nor no. the Soviet Union. Where did, where'd you go from there? So after Albania, there was one thing that really discouraged me. It was how divided the church was. Um, Albania was a virgin mission field because religion had almost been completely wiped out. And into this fresh field of snow, the the global church exported every kind of division you can imagine. So there were dozens of Baptist churches planted in the same town that didn't get on with each other. And I was quite discouraged by that. So I went back to study. Um, I was working part-time as a pastor of a church and studying missiology, how do Christians explain their faith, work um, theologically well, but also sociologically well in different contexts. And I was keen to discover new forms of mission that we wouldn't have to be as divided as we were.
0: Well, wow. leaping forward a long way. You've started here in the UK an organization called Home for Good.
1: Give us some motivation on that. Well, my wife and I, we had three kids in three years and we were under 30. That, that wasn't an, a plan, you know, by the grace of God, we were enabled to have children. And my wife says to me that she thinks we still had capacity to love children. And I'm going, yeah, yes, we do. It's busy with three, but I, I hear you. And so she suggested we become foster parents. And I thought fostering was a great idea. We,
0: we, should, be mar- we should
1: be interviewing your wife, man. You I definitely mean, she, should. She went
0: off to Albania, and now yeah. she's got three kids and that's not enough. She's the
1: hero in my life, for sure. <laughs> Apart from Jesus, she's the hero <laughs> in my life. What a wonderful
0: picture. So she, she, wants-
1: <laughs> she wanted to do more. Wow. And I'm thinking, that's a great idea. But for other people, that's going to mess up some of my plans. There, there are great reasons to have kids close together. Because if you have your kids close together, there's a chance sometime in the future they might all leave together. <laughs> And then it'll be back to the old days. Me and the wife, we could go on those little city breaks that couples do, and that, that, that was in my head. And then she was saying, well, what about extra kids? And I'm going, those city breaks won't be quite <laughs> as romantic if we're pulling a scooter along or we've got nappies with us or a baby. But a couple of things happened to me. One was some friends of ours in their 60s became foster parents for the first time. And they were looking after some um, children with a whole bunch of additional needs. And they were just doing a heroic job. And that challenged me. If they could do that in their 60s, well, why couldn't we do it in our 30s? And the other thing that happened, and it's an occupational hazard if you're a Christian, God spoke to me through the Bible. And it's bizarre that I've been reading the Bible since I was 15 and that kid in my class opened my eyes to Jesus. And yet I've missed this whole element that God really cares about the vulnerable, that it's an essential part of God's nature to care. In fact, God ties his own identity With the care of the most vulnerable children a father to the fatherless a protector of widows and orphans is our god psalm 68 well time and time again god keeps saying look if you really want to worship me it can't just be about the singing or the fasting it has to involve sharing your food with the hungry welcoming the stranger and so i had a bit of a biblical revolution that said hold on how did i miss this as a vital aspect of my worship of god And so I've got no choice now. We surrendered and we became foster parents. And it's been an amazing journey over the last 12 years. It's had its moments? Definitely. I'd say fostering is one of the most difficult things our family does. When you're sat with a a child who's just arrived in your house. I remember one lad, he turned up on our doorstep. It was a really tall boy. He had a pink suitcase, which obviously wasn't his. He'd been given it by a social worker. And there was a big gash on his face that I thought someone had attacked him with a knife. And it turns out a family member had attacked him with, with her own fingernails. Oh, and he'd just come from accident and emergencies on our doorstep. And he's shell-shocked. And uh, he's now sitting around our dinner table and he can't say very much. And then when the food arrives, we'd cooked sausages that day. We didn't know if he liked sausages or not. They, they don't come with recipe cards, what, what to feed a foster kid. But he then grabbed all, of all the sausages, ended up on his plate. And I'm thinking, what has happened to this lad that as soon as he sees food, he needs to protect it And we just, you know, he begins to tell us a little bit of his story. And those stories are absolutely heartbreaking. And so you're exposed to some of the the darker sides of our culture, some of the worst moments of of abuse and neglect and violence and sexual uh, crimes. And you're you're meeting the victims of that. So it's definitely dark. But when you see transformation, so when this little lad is, is playing with my boys and, you know, he won't say very much. And my boys say to him, well, why don't, we, why don't we use a therapeutic tool called an Xbox?" And uh, so he start playing and, you know, just the words that my boys, my slightly older boys were saying to him, you know, nice shot, mate, well done. And they're, they're using words of love and, and honor and dignity into him and watching this little lad with all the brokenness in his life just begin to stand a bit taller. A sparkle return to his eye. That is a real blessing. And, and we really feel we're part of God's mission as we do that.
0: Wow. One of the things, Chris,
1: often with um, with foster care is you have to give them back. Yes.
0: So yeah. How's that? How's that?
1: <laughs> so some people say, and I know you're, you're not saying this, Carl, but some people say, oh, Chris, I, I'd love to do what you would do, but I would love these kids too much to give them back. And I go, hang on, let, let me think. What, what are you saying? You're saying, I don't love these kids because I'm willing to give them back? Um, or, you know, what are you saying? You're saying you love these kids so much that because you're afraid of getting hurt, you're not gonna get involved in their lives at all? Actually, that's not love, that's called self-protection. So, so love is about meeting the needs of people that you come across, yeah. giving them everything you can, even though their futures are not in your hands. Think about a, a nurse or a doctor, That they, they, you want them to bond and connect with patients, even though they don't know, or actually don't control what happens next. So we've had some heartbreaking times when kids we've loved and they've moved on and sometimes they've moved on to places we don't think are best for them. We don't think the courts always make the best choices, but we have to say, look, on our watch, while these children have been in my home, they've been treated uh, as royalty. They've been loved with a passion. We've not held anything back because as God has loved us, that's that's his approach. And he doesn't hold anything back. He pours himself out into our lives, however we respond to him.
0: It's one thing to be a foster parent. It's another thing to create an organization that, that
1: encourages. Yeah. Uh, so why would you do that? Ah, a couple of reasons. So, so one was um, we just became aware of the need, and I was struggling to think why no one in the church was really talking about this. Um, when we started the organization, the numbers were, were, were quite amazing. So there was, there was about 5,000 children in the UK that were waiting for adoption. Uh, most of those were older kids, kids that weren't top of the list when most people come forward to adopt. To be honest, and it's, it's a tough situation, a lot of people that come forward to adopt are coming because of infertility. And we the church, we don't handle infertility well. There's a lot of pressure because we're so family focused that couples that are struggling to conceive really can find church tough. We need to get better at that. But when infertility is your driver, you really want a baby. You don't want a five-year-old who's got a speech defect. You want, you want a baby and that's perfect. And you don't want to deal with social workers and grandparents, you, you just want this baby for yourself. And so there was 5,000 kids waiting for adoption. And on top of that, there was a need for 9,000 foster families. And we did a bit of a trawl of some of the databases of the organizations that we were working with in the church. And we had reached about 15,000 churches. So I'm going, you know what? I, I don't need every Christian to adopt 10 children. I just need one new foster family, one new adoptive family per church, the rest of the church to do what it does best, wrap around, be a family, support them, cheer them on, and we could meet the entire need. And I thought, wow, that would be a game changer. It would change the lives of these children because so many kids, they they don't get adopted, they age out of foster care, and then it's like falling off a cliff. All the uh, work the church does amongst the homeless. In the UK, 25% of the homeless population are young people that have aged out of foster care. Uh, or we work in prisons 50 percent of the under 25 male prison population in the uk are young men that have aged out of foster care or we're trying to end people trafficking sexual slavery brilliant but in some areas of the uk 70 percent of prostitutes are young women that have aged out of foster care so i go we can change some of the futures of these children it's not all going to be anna green gables or despicable me it's not all going to end happily ever after but these kids will do better because we've loved them the second thing is we're just calling the church to be obedient. God says, James 1:27. here, this was a game-changer verse for me. True religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is, well, in a lot of churches, that is Bible study, prayer, singing, all of which are lovely, wonderful gifts, but they're not the test of what true religion looks like. True religion, says God, is, to care for widows and orphans in their distress. So all that prayer, all that Bible study, all that singing needs to translate into action into the lives of the most vulnerable people. And that's not just a one-off verse. You read the book of Isaiah, time and time again, God is saying, I've I've had enough of your singing. I've had enough of your offerings. Stop your meaningless gatherings, contend for the cause of the widow and the orphan. So this seems to be important. So we started this organization because we wanted to call the church to offer God the kind of worship that he asked for in the first place. And the third reason, and I was inspired by Rodney Stark's book, actually, The Rise of Christianity. He talks about in the second century how Christian responses to the plagues that were ripping through the Roman Empire. Um, we outthought our pagan neighbors. We had a better apologetic. Great. That's part of my history, apologetics but we outloved our pagan neighbors. We, the church, welcomed in the sick and the dying that weren't related to us. They were our neighbors, but we loved them, even though it put us in danger. And I thought, wow, if that was one of the things that changed the way that Christianity in the Western world you know, took over the Roman empire, I wonder what would happen if we took in every vulnerable child that needed a foster family or an adoptive family. What would that say? What signal would that send to the nation about what the gospel is all about? Because I rediscovered something and it's something we all know. You know, Jesus is the son of the living God, definitely right, but we are adopted sons and daughters. And so what better parable, what better parable of the grace of God than the church Demonstrating God's adopting love to us, to these kids that are in need, and we thought that could change the perception of a nation.
0: Wow, Chris, that sort of fits into the the, the wider scheme that you're talking about, which is a kind of biblical worldview that yeah. says that God is concerned for justice. Is that been something that's sort of grown in you over the? Is it just been through the foster care, or has
1: this grown in you over just your understanding of God, God and His Word? Yeah, it really has grown in me. Um, You know, those early days when I was coming to faith through a mate, my understanding of the gospel was basically it's about me and Jesus. Mm. That, you know, I'm on one side, God's on the other side and Jesus is the bridge and and Jesus' main aim in life was to take me from this side and bring me to himself. And that is an important element of the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. Mm. Um, I've been spending a lot of time recently in probably one of the most controversial parables that Jesus ever spoke in Matthew 25. He talks about the sheep and the goats, and this is the parable that I think Jesus is clearest about the final judgment. It says, you know, at the end of time, uh, God will gather all the people. The Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, and He will divide the nations up. And on one side He will have the sheep, and on another side He will have the goats. Um, and what was the differentiating factor of those that are in the kingdom and those that are not? Well, I, th- I thought it might be: Did you pray the prayer? You know, did, did you confess belief in Jesus? Did you sign a doctrinal statement? Uh, did you turn up at church regularly? Did you pray? Did you believe in salvation by faith? That isn't how that parable goes. The parable goes, well, you know, welcome. You are welcomed into the kingdom of God because I was hungry, says Jesus, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And everyone's going, hang on. Jesus, I don't remember that. I'm sure if I'd have seen the glorious Son of God, with the Shekinah glory of God emanating around him, uh, if, if you'd have come forward at a food bank and told me Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God is here, we would have remembered that. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, No, 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 no. In your normal practice, in your daily life, even when you didn't notice it, what you did to the least of these, you did for me. So again, it's connecting worship to God, adoration of Jesus in the care for the poor. And similarly, you know, what what is it that means that people don't enter the kingdom of God? The people that, and this is controversial, Jesus sends away to eternal punishment. He says, well, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me in. Jesus, I don't remember rejecting you like that. And he says, well, what you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. In other words, the, the litmus test of whether we've received grace from God I'm absolutely convinced we're only saved by grace, not by me being a nice person. No way. If I could have been saved by being a nice person, there was no need for Jesus to die on the cross. But the litmus test that you have received that grace from God is it begins to change your relationships. It transforms the way that you treat other people. And actually, that's not the only parable where that happens. Think about the parable of the unmerciful servant, someone who's been forgiven, you know, a huge debt, then refuses to forgive someone else, a small debt. And the king in that parable goes, well, because you didn't forgive that person, you haven't understood what I've done for you. So you're going to go to prison now. So in other words, this relationship that we've got with God to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind, that is demonstrated, that is proved in the way that we then love our neighbor or not. And if we don't love our neighbor, and we don't love God.
0: So Chris, in this area of, of God being concerned for the the poor and that whole area of justice. Who are some of the the champions for you? Who are the people that have inspired
1: you? Well, well, apart from the obvious one of Jesus and, you know, Amos, the prophet, or the book of Luke, if you want to read a book about social justice and God's concern for the poor, just read the book of Luke carefully. Um, I suppose more modern day heroes for me are are people like William Wilberforce. Uh, He was passionate for God. It was his faith in God that was driving him. Of course, he fought the transatlantic slave trade, but actually he set up a whole bunch of different organizations here in the UK, from the Bible Society to the, uh, the uh, Society for the Protection of Animals. He was concerned about demonstrating God's justice in every aspect of society, or Lord Shaftesbury, Florence Nightingale. Um, our history is littered with amazing men and women who realize that God loved them and that drove them to love their neighbor.
0: What, what do you think ha- has happened in the church where, you know, that that William Wilberforce, Shaftesbury, that, that's a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah. And, There are some places where it's not quite as active now, why
1: why that shift do you think? I think there was a big fight between those that were concerned with connecting with God and those that were concerned with loving their neighbour. And they became separated from one another. Um, The separation happened and and people called the the loving one another bit the social gospel. Um, And sometimes that social gospel didn't really care about connecting people with God. It was a form of Marxism. And you know, let's see if we can bring the kingdom of God here in our kind of everyday practice, in the way that our politics works and let's eradicate poverty. Um, And they kind of neglected the kind of vertical aspect of connecting people with God. Um, And and because of that, another group said, well, well, we'll just do the connecting with God and we'll just help people to have a, a good soul life, uh, picture what their future was going to be like. Um, Christianity became a get out of hell free card. You just believe the stuff and hope one day to meet Jesus. So, so those two things got separated. But in Jesus, they are bound together. Mm. If, if anyone could have preached the gospel just with words, Jesus could have done it. He is the living word of God, isn't it? Everything he says is pure gold, inspired and powerful. And yet Jesus didn't just preach the word. And if anyone could have brought the kingdom of heaven to earth just through justice and loving one another, Jesus could have done that, couldn't he? But but he didn't, he, he both preached the word and he lived it out. He fed the hungry. He fought injustice. He, he welcomed the stranger and the marginalized. So in Jesus, we have these two things together. And again, that's why I think the gospels are a great place for us mm. to go, to recover this way that these two aspects of God's purpose in the world get put together.
0: And for you, how has that played itself out? I mean, it, it's like that's just become more real for you in, in what you've done with Home for Good. Was that an outworking of your thinking or was that, has
1: that influenced your thinking? I think it's a virtuous circle, I think it's done both. So through caring for these vulnerable children, there have been moments where I have just felt the presence of God. I I think of a a train journey I was on. I'd left my phone on the train and someone on the next station had handed it in and phoned the station manager. And and here here it is. I'm, I'm going on this train journey. And it's an 11 minute journey. And I thought that would be a great one to take this little boy that just came into our care. He was three years old. He'd had eight different homes already before he came to us. And I knew that he'd never been on a train. So he came with me on the train and he did it all wrong. He stood on the seat. That's a mortal sin in some countries. He had his nose pressed against the window and he's shouting everything he could see. Bus, tree, car, sheep, bridge. And he's just full of energy and joy. And in that moment, on that train, I'm having an experience of God. And I know you're supposed to have an experience of God in church or in Israel or in heaven, but I'm having one on a train because I know this boy's story. I know that he could barely speak when he came to us. And now look at him. And I'm reminded of this Bible passage in Zephaniah where God says that he rejoices over us with singing. I think partly because he knows where we've come from. And I want to sing on the train, but I'm British. So I sing internally, but I'm having this experience of God. And it, so this, this bit of justice, this bit of hospitality, this, this horizontal loving my neighbor is actually connecting me with God in a really profound way. And actually it's worked the other way around too. So when we turn up at a school with our kids, we've got seven kids and they don't always go everywhere with us, but people can't quite work out how everyone's related. Like the kids don't look like me. Some are very pale, some are very dark and I'm not and neither is my wife and, and they just want to know why. And where we go, well, this is just an expression of our Christian service as Christians, God adopted us and we didn't deserve it. So we want these kids to know the grace of God in their lives, lived out practically. And so many evangelistic conversations have come just from us being a family. Mm. Your experience of looking over
0: history, you mentioned before William Wilberforce and Shaftesbury. There are places that you've seen the church actually proactively in justice in ways that others haven't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, again, right from the beginning, we talked about Rodney Stark to, you know, the second century, that hospitality to, to neighbours, um, the whole of the, the, the hospital movement. Christianity invented hospitals that were there, not just for you know, Roman soldiers or your family, but for anybody. We, they were the first um, voluntary organizations in some places. Uh, we invented things like the rule of law, that, the idea that every individual matters, and that, that kind of uh, translated. We, in Britain, public schools, schools for everybody, The church invented that. It was the raggedy schools where where churches used to open on a Sunday morning and welcome kids in and teach them how to read and write. And and that's how our education system came about. So throughout the centuries, Christianity has been like a seed in a culture and it's often brought the best out of it. And many of the things that we value most in our society, they have a Christian origin, but we haven't done the kind of cultural archaeology to know that. And now a lot of people want to live with the benefits of that Christian worldview, but kind of cut away the mindset that, that it's God that's at the heart of it. It's God's dignity of loving us as individuals, of us being made in the image of God. All of that has been stripped away and we just want the benefits. And I'm reminded Friedrich Nietzsche had this amazing little um, story of a man running into a village and saying, God is dead, God is dead. Hasn't it got colder, isn't it darker? And he looks around and everyone goes, you're crazy, you're mad. And he says, oh, I've come too early. In other words, I, we've killed God. We've tried to kill the idea of God in our culture, but we're still living in the vestiges of that Christian framework. And so, part of my exciting job, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be with a whole bunch of social workers and I'll, I'll explain to them look, some of the things that you most value about tolerance, about equality. They actually have a Christian origin. So to say Christians shouldn't be fostering it up that would be crazy that Christianity is the framework in which a lot of the things you value most have come into being in the first place. Mm.
0: When you reflected earlier about that there are those who almost social Marxism, they uh, fr- coming out of a Christian framework, but they don't want to talk about the gospel of Jesus. Yeah. Why do you reckon that happened?
1: I think one of the reasons we've Lost the history of Christianity and the way that it's given us some of the things that we value most. Some of it has been uh, because Christians have retreated away from public life. We haven't been there contending for this, ex- reminding people of the impact. And sometimes we, the church, have become so obsessed with our relationship with God that that's the only bit that matters. So you go to church, people tell you to close your eyes and forget your week and, and just disappear into the loving arms of the Father. And I'm going, that's escapism that's not helpful um, you know when jesus told us to worship he meant feed the hungry and, and and help the poor not not retreat into some kind of ghetto and so some of the reasons that our culture has forgotten its christian heritage is christians haven't played their role we haven't been mm. salt and light we haven't lived our life before men that they may see our good deeds and praise our father in heaven i think that's part of it I think also um, there's been a bit of uh, pick and mix. You know, we've our, our culture has picked the best bits of Christianity and, and decided what it doesn't want. And some of that is about, you know, human nature and rebellion. We, we don't want to submit to a God that, you know, is Lord over all creation, want to go our own way. That's, that's kind of the history of humanity. And so the problem is we want, you know, we want the good bits and we don't want the difficult bits. And so we've selected it down. But I think ultimately we'll run out. Um, I was listening to Tim Keller speak recently, and he talked about this paradox at the heart of our culture: that we've become more concerned about ethics. So there's the a whole conversation about inclusion and tolerance, and and you know there are rights, um, but we've become We've lost the sources that would give us that, that ethical framework So when you ask someone about ethics, they say well, it's all relative so so how do you have this contradiction that we care about justice and everybody needs to be included and everybody has rights and yet There's no basis on which to to build that on mm. and so I think this is part of what Nietzsche was talking about that this this mad time where our culture has tried to kill God, but we're still living in the the overhang of the Christian framework. Last question,
0: and you've answered this in lots of different ways. But if I said to you, so for you, how is Jesus a game changer? How would you answer that?
1: Well, at many levels, Jesus is a game changer. In my life, he's been a game changer. I was a very nervous young boy who didn't know that they mattered to anybody. My parents were lovely, but in a school where I was the brown kid and everyone else was white, I felt completely marginalized and isolated. And Jesus welcomed me home. He, he told me that I had value and worth, that he loved me enough to die on the cross for me and welcome me into his family, and he wanted to make something of me. So I personally have been changed by Jesus. My life game has been transformed by him. But if you look back in history, since the church uh, started to explode across the world with the gospel that we humbly and yet confidently shared everywhere we went and we we wanted to proclaim the whole counsel of God. We wanted the kingdom of God to be demonstrated. I think you can see this snowball of of influence of of hospitals and law and um, welcome of the stranger, of of education. I think almost every aspect of our society has been touched by him. I took my son on an 18th birthday celebration trip as a surprise. He's an artist. So I took him to the art galleries of Madrid and almost every wall in all the art galleries had a picture of Jesus. He's, he's touched every aspect of our culture, every, every aspect of our civilization, and the best bits come from him.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.